Welcome to the In Camera Review Podcast. Gentlemen, tonight we will be discussing a movie, an actor, and a year. Our movie this evening is Children of Men. Our actor is Christopher Walken. And our year is 1974 in film and the 1975 Academy Awards. Godfather Part Two took home the gold that year. Also nominated along with it, Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, and The Towering Inferno. This week, I watched just a few movies. I watched, of course, Children of Men. And for Christopher Walken, I watched The Dead Zone, which I had not seen before. I'm a big fan of the book. And then I also watched the first about 15 minutes of a movie called McBain, which we'll have to talk about a little bit. But what'd you watch, Matt? I watched Children of Men one and a half times, and I continued reading I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It's good stuff. Logan, what'd you watch, buddy? Children of Men. I also watched a couple of the nominees from the Best Picture year, The Conversation for the first time and Lenny for the first time. Lenny Bruce is not afraid, or so Michael Stipe tells us. Pretty risque, boys. Pretty risque movie for 1974. When we come back, we're going to be discussing Children of Men. The human project gives this great big dinner of all the scientists and sages in the world. They're tossing around theories about the ultimate mystery. Why are women infertile? Why can't we make babies anymore? Some of them say it's genetic experiments, gamma rays, pollution, same old, same old. Anyway, in the corner, this Englishman sitting. He hasn't said a word. He's just tucking into his dinner. <laughs> so they decide to ask him. They say, well, why do you think we can't make babies anymore? And he looks up at them, and he's chewing on this great big wing. And he says, I haven't the faintest idea, he said. But this stalk is quite tasty, isn't it? Michael Caine and Clive Owen in a scene from Children of Men came out in 2006, directed by Alfonso Curran, based on a book by P.D. James in 1992. All right, so what's this movie about? In 2027, humans have not been able to make babies for 20 years for an unexplained reason. The world has collapsed as a result of this lack of hope and complete despair, except for the United Kingdom. Julianne Moore plays a labeled terrorist in the movie who asks her estranged husband, Clive Owen, who is a government bureaucrat with the British government, for transit papers to move the first woman to become pregnant in 20 years to safety with a boat called the Tomorrow, led by the Human Project people who live on the Azores, and one would assume is some sort of cornucopia of peace and love and all things ready to start human life again. I think this is a fantastic movie. I love this movie. I was blown away when I saw it. I really enjoyed rewatching it. It's got some of the best cinematography I've seen in a very long time. I think it holds up very well in the years it's been out. I have a lot to say about this movie, but Matt, I know you do too. So tell us about who you have told us is the greatest new director really of our generation and this being one of his signature films. When I first watched this movie, I was not excited to see it. I remember a trailer back in the day with actually a voiceover. And I just remember thinking that a movie about women not being able to have babies is, sounds like the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. What do people believe is crap? Um, <laughs> so I think it might have just been on, on TV. And I, I caught it from the very beginning. 
and I, I watched it and I was, so based off low expectations, I was blown away by it. Blown away by two things, the style in which it's shot. And the first time I watched it, I noticed two tracking shots, which required a lot of difficulty or a lot of technical skill. The, the first is when Julian Moore gets killed. Jesus Christ! Spoiler alert, when they start off with him waking up, they do this trip with ping pong balls, and then, you know, a, a group of marauders attacks the car, and they have to go in reverse and run away, and Julian Moore is shot by a motorcycle, and then they, they encounter the police. It's just a lot of action in a short period of time. And then towards the end, when, when Clive Owen's running through the refugee town, that was a one-track shot, too. And I was like, that, that movie's got two of the best tracking shots I've ever seen. And I didn't realize until I watched it this week, the whole movie is a bunch of different tracking shots. There's, there's not two, there's like 12 of them. And just a really fresh take on, on that. I don't, think, I don't even think it was indulgent. I think that was just the style that they wanted to make it kind of live action. You know, the opening scene where he walks out and has the coffee and, and with the explosion, I didn't realize that was a tracking shot until I watched it this week. Matt, one of the things I read about this week was that Alfonso Curon said that he wanted the environment to be its own separate character. And, and, so and it he, accomplished that. It accomplished that. And so one of the reasons why he liked those tracking shots was as we would follow you know, Clive Owen or the other characters through a scene and the camera would stop and linger on you know, open air cages full of immigrants or people dying in the street or graffiti on a wall, that kind of thing. He, he wanted that part to come alive and really be something for the audience to digest and not necessarily through the characters uh, you know, on the screen, but through a character of just the environment itself. Again, and and it's, I don't think it's indulgent. I I really don't. I I think that it really accomplished that. In terms of the difference would be the director of True Detective who did that that tracking shot. There there was no reason to do that tracking shot. There really wasn't. Yeah, but it's really cool. It's really cool. I mean, I think directors like to be able to have that notch on their belt and say they did that one or so. Yeah, I mean, maybe when they talk among the, amongst themselves, you know, oh, you don't, you haven't done one? It's, they're not that hard, you know. Like, <laughs> but 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 it really accomplished it in, in this movie, where where you look around or you turn around and, and the camera follows it. But really, that's not why I loved the movie. I loved Clive Owen in this movie. I loved the fact that he was essentially a bureaucrat. He'd given up on, on life at that point for a number of reasons. It, it's not just that children can't have babies. You, you discover that his son died when, when he was a, a child. And he's numb. He's an alcoholic. He really doesn't give a fuck. He's pretty apathetic. He doesn't show any emotion when the youngest person in the world dies and the rest of the world is mourning. And he calls him a wanker and he, he essentially uses that as a, a way to play hooky and go hang out with his friend and get high. Michael Caine was your friend who had strawberry cough marijuana. You you ditch work to hang out with him too, though. <laughs> right. I know. But I mean, I, I like that he was that person and that he woke up from it slowly 
and and still wasn't a great guy throughout it, but he just sacrificed himself, woke up, started to live the pain. And when he sees that this woman has a baby, does whatever it takes and redeemed himself. I, I thought it was a great movie. I thought the score or the operatic music in it. It's a five-star movie for me. I loved it. Well, as Monty Python would say, now for something completely different. Logan, tell us what you thought. I am not on the five-star train. I am not on the Clive Owen train. I don't particularly care for him. Having said that, I will say that he's probably a pretty pretty great casting choice for the role that they want him to play because he is essentially the hero of the story, right? But to your point, Matt, he doesn't really come across as the hero. He doesn't all of a sudden, like so many movies now, find some specific set of skills, right, that will carry the day. When they have the scene and they're running away after Julian Moore gets killed and they, the cops stop them and the, the, the other guy shoots them, he's like, What are you doing? Why did you do that? He's still sort of anti-violence. Michael Caine is the highlight of the movie for me. I think he's fantastic. He's such a great character in the movie. Pull my finger. <laughs> I have two issues with this movie. There are what I call a bunch of fake suspense scenes in which they create suspense for really no reason. Like there's just, there's nothing in the story. And so they fill it in with fake suspense. One of those is when he has to push the car out of the thing because it won't start and they're chasing him. I just think it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous way to create suspense in the story. It, it wasn't necessary. The, it, okay. So again, we just talked about it. Everybody's done them, right? So like, let's do another one. And what would be a really cool way to do it? Oh, we could have them push the fucking car. There's a rooster going crowing in the background. Right. More just like, let's add some suspense by having this rooster crow in the background. When he, at the end, when he runs into the building that is under fire by a tank and a firing squad, again, it's just more of like, really, that's like, it's just another action scene that they've thrown in to fill the story with what I would consider to be fake suspense. And you know, he's going to make it the scene where he's looking for shoes and he ends up with flip-flops. So he's running around in flip-flops for the rest of the movie adds even more drama, right? Cause he like hurts his foot. And so he's limping. And to me, it's over the top. Logan, let me ask, let me ask you this, man. So when you're, when you're watching this movie the first time, as Matt said, spoiler alert, Julianne Moore gets capped and you're brought into the movie and you're starting to see the main characters be revealed and you see Julianne Moore in this dramatic displaying of her character and then realize that she's not just some terrorist leader who has some tangential relationship with Clive Owen, who is clearly our, our main character at this point as this story is unfolding. She's got this history with him and you're thinking they're going to have a relationship. They're going to have a revival. So when you watched it, did, you know, when you, when you saw that flaming car come down the hill and she says, let's go. And the motorcycle comes up. Did you find that suspenseful? Did you find that fake suspenseful? Absolutely. I, and I, I was going to say, I give them major kudos for that. It's almost, it's like a Stringer Bell moment, right? Where you're like, holy shit. I can't believe that just happened. That was a Get big on with the motherfucker. <laughs> right. A big turn in the story. Huge kudos for that. 
having said that, then the rest of the story, they're adding all of this, I, I don't know, fake suspense is what I'm going to call it. I guess the reason why I asked that question is so do you trust the filmmaker at that point that you're going to get a happy ending? Because one of the things that happens in the movie is Clive Owen has this breakdown on the immigration police bus where he's like, wait, no one's ever talked to these people at the human project. Right, right. That was great. You know? And, and so, and I, I remember watching that being like, Oh, well they're, they're just, they're breaking into a prison and they're going to be stuck there in this horrible hellhole and sit on a rowboat and they're not going to be out there. Did you, when I watched that, that's how I felt. Did you, but, is that that's, not how, how that's how the movie ends, right? Is like he's he dies in the boat, in which is in a harbor with tons of waves, and he stops rowing. Yet the boat stops moving, and then tomorrow comes. It was just kind of a cheese dick ending for me. And again, it's unexplained. You don't know. You don't know if tomorrow is like a another bad ship, and so they they don't make it. Oh, uh, you're such a wanker. You're. I'm gonna <laughs> rename you the Big H for the big hater for <laughs> things not being original in Hollywood where nothing's fucking original and you're hating on Clive Owen for playing the same role when last week you picked Woody Harrelson who plays the same thing in, in everything too stop hating brother man what, what, what the fuck's the matter with you I'm not hating I'm I feel like I'm providing fair criticism I don't think it's a five-star movie. I, you challenged me in the text message chain this week. There are other post-apocalyptic movies that I think are better, that do a better job of creating suspense. One of them is with your boy, Denzel. The it's Book, of, the Book Eli. of Eli. They do a fantastic job in that movie of creating real suspense. That movie is science fiction. Okay, and this is, this is also fiction. called science sci-fi thriller. That's what it's. That was going to be my. That? that was going to be a and question called, I was going to ask both of you though. Was it, is this an action movie or is this a sci-fi movie? It's an action movie. I think it's a thriller. They've got it labeled as a sci-fi thriller. I think this is a, a really great movie. As I mentioned, I have a lot to say about it. One one of the things I'll say is this: unlike the movie we reviewed last week, that was based on a, a wide-selling novel. This movie is very disconnected from the book. This book is more about religion and the lack of being able to make children is the lack of God and all sorts of other things. And there's, there's no such thing as a human project and all this. I mean, this is, uh, this is Curon and, and his, and his, I think there's three writers that get credit for it, but also uncredited according to Alfonso is Clive Owen, who had a lot of input on this screenplay. I think, to me, when I watched this, this was one of the most original adapted screenplays that took something and really an idea and just ran with it. You know, that, that book came out in 92. So I thought it tried to be contemporary by making a lot of statements about Iraq, Grabe, immigration. I think in many ways, the movie was very prescient to the times that we live in right now. There's some really interesting things that this director does with the source material to extend it to a medium of film. I love the scene when they're playing the Court of the Crimson King and Clive Owen goes to see his brother who works for the, the Ark of the Arts. Danny Houston. Yes. Love yeah. Danny Houston. He's fantastic. And, you know, he says, with Michelangelo's David behind him, he says, Couldn't save La Guitar. Smashed up before we got that. Which is another Michelangelo sculpture. And then later on in the movie, we see essentially the human reenactment of La Pieta with a, a woman and her and her dead child lying in her arms. 
while they're eating dinner, Guernica by Pablo Picasso is behind Clive Owen as the background because when you're the head of the Arc of the Arts, you get to take priceless, you know, works of art and put them up in your dining room and just yell at your kids to take their pills. But of course, that is one of the most famous anti-war paintings. It was uh, anti-Spanish Civil War back in the 1930s. So you have a lot of, I think, pushback from Huron on the post 9-11 Iraq war. And of course, refugees, refugees, right. And all of those things, I, which is none, none of that is in the book. And so I found that to be just a really bold take on it by not just doing like what was done in the Silence of the Lambs we talked last week, which was essentially following that to the T, but doing something completely different with it. And really this should have been like when they do movies that are loosely based on true stories, this should have been like loosely based on this book. It truly is. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. It, It really is loosely based on it. And I like this movie because it focuses more on humanity rather than religion. It focuses on the fragility of society rather than on the absence of God. I just feel like there's so much thought put into every detail in this movie from the way it's shot to everything. So, Mike, you, you've got a real problem with voiceovers or narration. We're not going to get into a giant conversation on this particular podcast for the benefit of our listeners. However, there is a scene that I took notice to. So when you're learning about Michael Caine and his wife, who was apparently tortured and is wheelchair bound, cannot speak, but she looked okay other than that. It's just Clive Owen looking at a bunch of newspaper articles that go in chronological order. Is that a shortcut, Mike? Could a voiceover be used there, Mike? Is that legit? What's your thought on that? Well, so part of that is that we have no frame of reference for Michael Caine's character when we meet him, and it's never explained who he is or what their relationship is. He apparently was a political cartoonist, right? So we see that. And so what I took away from that is that he was a journalist and worked for newspapers. And so, and his house is full of books and newspaper articles and journalistic awards, And so it was more of the setting of what you would expect that character's house to be rather than a medium by which to give background to that, because it's not necessarily essential to moving the plot along to understand why his wife is essentially catatonic and that it's no big deal that uh, that he gives her the quietest suicide. I, I just felt like that was just more setting than it was moving plot. Well, isn't that what half of the introductions of fellow gangsters are in Goodfellas. Like I said, we're not going to get into it. I'm just going to leave that, leave that out there. I mean, and, and I know I'm glad that you took that from the newspaper articles that were spoon fed to you, but, but don't you think that there was no other way to possibly comprehend it than, than how you just did? Well, just put that to the side. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm just asking about that as a device. No, it's a, it's a good question. And, I, and not to dwell on it, I'll just say this. There's a use for narrator for moving a plot along, and then there's and there's a use for narrator for or other devices just to give you context. Those are those are two different things. My next question is, what did you take about the use of animals in the movie? I could I didn't know what to make of it. So one of the things that I, I thought was a good use of the source material was in the book, animals have basically taken the place of babies and children. So they, they ride them around in strollers and they dress them up. And it, the gypsy you know, carries the dog around all the whole time. 
Right. And in, and in the book, it's very express that animals have replaced babies and in the, in the cuteness and that part of human life. And in the movie, it's it's not real clear. I think there's a lot of subtleties to it, and there's a lot you could you could take that away from as the book would put it. I think the gypsy with her dog is a good example of that. But I just think that it's one of those things that is not necessarily clear, and I think is up for debate. So, Mike, what do you give it? Matt's get Matt's already given him five stars. I give this a very high five star. I think this is one of like I said, one of the most just effective and artistic cinematography. It was nominated for Best Cinematography. I don't understand why it did not win. I think they realized he's young and this this kid's going to put out a lot more because they've already given him two Academy Awards since then in, in a relatively short period of time for Best right. Director. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is I, I look at this movie and I think it's it's cinematography. It's an adapted screenplay. It's director the weakness of this movie is that Clive Owen is a British actor who does not move to Hollywood. And so he is not part of the Academy circle. And as we know, talking about Harvey last week, that matters. If you're a Brit that lives in London and doesn't move to Hollywood, you don't get all of the roles. And this is a British film. You don't get all the recognition. Right. right. I, I'd love to see Clive Owen get a lot more work. I really would. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with him is he doesn't get the work because of where he lives. And so, and I just think that Curon looked at that and said, I don't care. They're the people that I would expect to be in this role. I think Logan, you hit the nail on the head with saying that, you know, you don't like Clive Owen, but you see why he fits this role because he's not necessarily like this really likable action character that we would expect these things from. He's actually in every scene we see him exceed expectations rather than, than meet them because they're so low for this character. It's about redemption. It's about sacrifice. I Again, I go back to, I just think that the stuff that they did with the source material as a loosely based concept to expand on that was just extraordinarily well done. I really enjoyed it. I think it's better than Little Miss Sunshine. I think it's better than Letters from Iwo Jima. I think it's better than Babel. And I think that it's debatable whether it's better than The Queen or The Departed. Agreed. And I love The Departed, and it's just, it didn't get the campaign that it deserved. I think after this movie came out, and they knew they had to give it to Martin Scorsese at that point, then they started to take a hard look at these Mexican directors, and they were like, guys, these three are working together, and they are putting together some ridiculous shit. We have to start paying attention. I give it three, three and a half stars. I appreciate several things, which are the cinematography and the kudos to kill a pretty major character in the middle of the movie. The story for me, you talk about the three legs of a great movie. The story for me and the, and the writing just don't, they just don't get there for me. And I don't like Clive Owen. I just don't, I don't care for him. Last thing I'll say about this movie is, Damn good performance out of nowhere by Charlie Hoonan yeah. as Patrick. Yeah, he comes he comes in uh, later. Yeah, yeah I, I like him in Sons of Anarchy. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Christopher Walken. This watch was on your daddy's wrist when they were shot down at Hanoi. It was captured from the Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, they'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright, so he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. 
Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I give the watch to you. Christopher Walken in one of the greatest cameos of all time in Pulp Fiction as Colonel Kuntz. King uh, of cameos. Yes. Right. I, I would call him one of the kings of cameos. The guy started his career with the win for Best Supporting Actor, so he's there for your cameo to support whatever it is you're doing. Christopher Walken has a really interesting career. He is, to say the least, prolific. The man is a worker. He's got, IMDb runs out of server storage to catalog this guy's films. I will mention just a few of them to start the discussion off. Obviously, in 1978, The Deer Hunter, he wins Best Supporting Actor. But just before that, he was in 1977's Annie Hall. I told you I watched The Dead Zone earlier. James Bond's flick in 85, A View to a Kill. That's one of many villains that he plays in his career. 86, Close Range, Biloxi Blues, Batman Returns, again a villain. True Romance, also a villain. Well, we just saw Pulp Fiction from 1994. In 95, he starts the Prophecy trilogy, quadrilogy, whatever it is. I think it's just the make money for Christopher Walken genre. <laughs> Suicide King, Sleepy Hollow, Joe Dirt, Weapon of Choice he does around the same time, which is what we played at the top of the segment. Catch Me If You Can. Great movie and a great performance by him. He's nominated for oh, Best. Oh, I forgot about that. That little mouse just churns that cream in the butter. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> that, really- it, was, it was between that and the Pulp Fiction scene for me. Of and course. All submitting scenes. Yes. Very good selection, Logan. 2005, Wedding Crashers. Click, Adam Sandler, Hairspray, or Seven Psychopaths, which we've talked about with Martin McDonough. He's great in Seven Psychopaths. Really good. <laughs> yeah. Now, that scene with him and Woody Harrelson is fantastic. I looked at that. You have it? No. Really? Please. I, I want you to have it. But yeah, the least you could say about the guy is prolific. I read he, he does not have children, and he credits he and his wife's decision to not have children as one of the reasons why he's been able to work so much over the years. He also seems like he just will do anything. Comedy, drama, cameo, war movie. He's not that much different than Woody, right? Like we talked about Woody last week. Woody's in all of that kind of stuff too, right? A lot of parallels. A lot of parallels. He has some of the best Saturday Night Live characters of all time. The Continental. Cowbell. Exactly. Bruce Dickinson, the cock of the walk. More cowbell. I got a fever. And the only prescription... It's more cowbell. But Drinking champagne. <laughs> champagne. Vintage champagne. It's a really curious thing because I love the deer hunter. And he's he, that scene that I sent out from the deer hunter with he and De Niro with the one shot. It's, it's an iconic scene. De Niro's phenomenal in it. Walken is amazing. That movie in particular, that scene has endured. One shot. And I don't know if that is what has been able to undergird Walken's 
ability to continue to get roles and not just sort of become a B movie actor because there was a time where he sort of was doing anything. I, I mentioned those the dead zone movies are B movies, right? Right, right. So Dead Zone he does a couple years later, and and this McBain movie comes out not long after where he's in Vietnam, and that movie is so B that it's McBain is the character from The Simpsons. You know, McBain is, you know, get Mendoza, right? Remember from the guy that eventually becomes Rainier Wolfcastle in The Simpsons? Ooh, McBain. The cheesiest action star, and you've got Christopher Walken in this movie that's the same title. But at the same time, he can also turn out these really good performances like in Catch Me If You Can. He does really good comedy like in Joe Dirt. He can pull off a nice serious role in True Romance. He can come in and do a flawless cameo. It's a really strange uh, career. I'm curious what you guys think. Logan, it sounds like you spent a little time looking at a lot of his repertoire. So what, what's your, what are your thoughts? How do you explain the life and times of one Christopher Walken? Yeah, he's, like I said, he's, he's very much like Woody, only he's kind of gimmicky, right? He's got his cadence that you expect now. And I think we talked about this with Pacino. Pacino's got his cadence that he does. And I don't know if movie directors and producers are seeking that out because that's what they want, or they know that's exactly what they're going to get, but he doesn't quite have it in deer hunter. It develops after that, but He's Matt really good in deer hunter. Cause he doesn't have it. Right. Right. And, and Matt, I think has brought this up. If you watch enough of a person's catalog, you re- you recognize things that they do, the way they move their mouths, the way that Denzel moves his eyes. Walken not only has the cadence with his voice, but he always touches his nose and then points during the scene, right? It's in so many of his movies, like going back and watching some of his clips and stuff. He played a villain a lot, and I think he that's kind of a little niche for him as well. It's He's got an interesting interesting mix for sure i think that take is spot on very much so uh matt what do you think so i think you guys got to remember that you know people thought he killed natalie wood or was part of that for a very long time and so you know either he did and he's just kept his head down and kept working put fucking cranking out b movies for 10 years 20 years before the, the comedians at Saturday Night Live and, and Quentin Tarantino gave him a comeback by impersonating him, giving him these these roles. And, and, and you're right, at that point, Logan, he became a character of himself. And then he started getting tons of roles, tons of high-profile comedic roles. Cameras, Joe Dirt, yeah. Wedding Crashers, Batman Returns, all those types of movies came out recently so he's had a hell of a autumn career but a, a lot of that you got to remember guys he was you know one of the suspects in that in that accident and well and that's the thing is not just a suspect at the time but then later they reopened the investigation many years later and he hired a lawyer and he right, man. so Natalie, Natalie Wood was beloved was beloved right so I mean probably it was hard for him to get some real work after 1981 hence where the catalog goes with all the B movies you gotta pay those legal bills the real story of her death is that she um, drowned and uh, nobody knows uh, how she drowned or 
what happened except uh, her. Quentin Tarantino has a knack for picking actors that are down on their luck and giving them a role to turn it around. So I don't know if that's psychotic on his part or a talent. Yeah, I mean, his, his career does a 180 after Pulp Fiction, right? I mean, in, in the way that John Travolta does before he and Scientology put it back in the toilet. But uh, certainly for Christopher Walken, he, he's never looked back from that point on. He's just done nothing but make movies that make money and continue to solidify his, you know, unique screen presence, really make it a kind of a commodity that seems to be sought out in movies. In Batman Returns, he had a, a, a little bit of a comeback, but he wasn't that great in that. The True Romance, which is Quentin. Quentin wrote the script and then sold right. it. I really, I enjoy his catalog, The Deer Hunter, where it began, Pulp Fiction, where it got a revival, and, and it's the, one of the ultimate cameos of all time. And then, of course, the uh, Joe Dirt. Does your mother sew? Boom! Get her to sew that! You're talking to my guy all wrong. The wrong town. Do it again. <laughs> uh, I'll stab you in the face with a soldering iron. Yeah, I mean, take a look again at the catalog. His last 20 years, the last 20 years are his best in terms of making money, making good movies, and it's because the young kids don't remember Natalie Wood. When we come back, we're going to be going in the Wayback Machine to the 1975 Academy Awards. They're saps because they risk their lives for strangers. Oh, that's pop talking. You're goddamn right, that's pop talking. They risk their lives for their country. Your country ain't your blood, you remember that. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. Well, if you don't feel like that, why don't you just quit college and go to, go to join the army? I did. I enlisted in the Marines. Mike, why? Why didn't you come to us? What do you mean? I mean, Pop had to pull a lot of strings to get your deferment. I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask for a deferment. I didn't want it. That was the best scene of all time from The Godfather Part Two, because it's really almost the scene from The Godfather Part One. And chronologically, it's the beginning. It had to have been filmed during Godfather Part One, right? So it's funny they like they edited it out. No, they they didn't. They came back and and did it, which is funny because it's the only scene James Caan is in in The Godfather Part Two. Because of course he has one of the best all time death scenes on the causeway. But no, he he was brought back, and the trivia was that he was paid the exact same amount for Godfather Part Two that he was paid for Godfather Part One. But that scene is amazing. It's my favorite I, scene of both movies. I think it was the unanimous scene of Francis Ford Coppola's catalog as being the best of his career when we were looking at, at best directors off the podcast this movie is the best sequel ever made period can't think of any sequel that's better than than this it's the only sequel i can think of that you could make the argument legitimately reasonable minds can differ as to whether it's better than part one i happen to be a yes. part one enthusiast and so i i'm a fan of part one but this movie in 1975 it was up against chinatown which was directed by roman polanski and Francis Ford Coppola was up against himself with The Conversation, starring Gene Hackman. Also up that year were two other movies, Lenny, biopic pick about Lenny Bruce, 
the black and white picture directed by Bob Fosse. If you're a fan of R.E.M. or the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, you know who Lenny Bruce is. He was the comic that was George Carlin before there was a George Carlin as far as getting arrested and saying words you can't say in public, obscenity, those kinds of things. Interestingly enough, Bob Fosse directed that. He won the 1973 Oscar for Best Director for Cabaret. He was nominated for Lenny as well as All That Jazz. Lenny stars Dustin Hoffman. Towering Inferno, that's a Steve McQueen movie about a tall building that catches on fire. Right, Paul Newman's in it. It's the I watched the so-called trailer for it on Amazon Prime, and the trailer is just ridiculous. It's like a movie promo from that you would expect from the 70s. It's like the towering inferno. It's a burning building. They got to get everybody out. The towering inferno. And it just keeps saying. The towering inferno. You won't believe how hot this building is getting. It's the towering inferno. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. Because I've seen The Godfather Part 2 multiple times. And I've seen Chinatown. And so I wanted to sort of roll through the, through the list. But I couldn't bring myself to watch it. I think that is just sort of, you know, we talked about Armageddon and Deep Impact. There, there is an American fascination with a disaster movie. Volcano, Twister, Day After Tomorrow and 2012. And just we just love these disaster movies. And that really was not a genre back then. You know, that was really not a thing. And so The Towering Inferno had Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, had some some cachet to it. They put some money. They obviously put some really good thought into the trailer and got a guy to say the same thing over and over again. Forget The Towering Inferno. That's not even in discussion, right? The, the Godfather Part Two and Chinatown and The Conversation and Lenny, they're all great movies. These are all fantastic movies, in my opinion. I think they're all great. And what I will say about this about this time in cinema and where where this shows, there are fewer movies being made in 1974 than there are in 1994 and in 2014. There are not many movies being made. Blazing Saddles, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Man with the Golden Gun, Murder on the Orient Express, Young Frankenstein, Great Gatsby. Those to me are some other movies that are notable from 1974, but not a lot else. And that's not because the movies sucked. It's because they just weren't making that many movies. We make so many more movies now than we used to. And so to me, this is a very good year. This is the epitome of 1970s excellent cinema where you have a lot of really great five-star movies in this era and particularly this year. And it just so happens that, of course, when you have that kind of quality of movies being made, the bar is exceeded by, I mean, this Godfather Part Two is, I mean, to say it's an iconic movie is a disservice. It's it's the masterpiece that everybody tries to imitate. It's, it's the best, right? I mean, it's, it's up there in the conversation of one of the greatest movies of all time. Chinatown is a five-star movie. Right. right. So, a five-star movie. So that's where I was going. We talked, I don't know if we talked about it last week, but certainly when I picked the most recent Oscar year, I would argue that there's no five-star movies in 2019. I think the last, last week with Shakespeare in Love, I don't think there's a five-star movie in that bunch either. Certainly not in the nominees. I'd have to take a closer look at American History X to see if I would give that five stars. There's definitely two in this year 
which is Godfather and Chinatown. Jill. But okay, it's not even just two five-star movies. It's two like top twenty movies. Uh, agreed. I, I don't think there's another year with two heavy hitters like this. I mean, on, on this level. Like, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, I can't think of anything where going into it, you're like, oh my god, which one's it going to be? Because they're both awesome and like one there's like one crew being like godfather the other one's going shit don't happen anymore now it's spotlight's gonna win or this year it's gonna be moonlight or this year it's gonna be you know some dog millionaire right people knew parasite was gonna win yeah it's a good i mean it's a good benchmark i think for us going forward to say does how does it compare how do these movies compare to this year and i it's gonna be really tough to top I did watch The Conversation, which is another Francis Ford Coppola movie. So I looked it up. Other than 2000, when Soderbergh has Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, you have to go back to the 1930s to find another year in which two movies from the same director are up for Best Picture in the same year. Right, and Soderbergh directs with like a camcorder. So I mean, like, that, <laughs> like you can you can do that. He can do that. And, and, right, but yeah. it's it's a big it's a big year. So the conversation. Duffy, Clint Eastwood, Juan Logan, Clint Eastwood had Letters to Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers. I think. Um, he was cranking out two a year for a while too. Not yep. not both being nominated for best picture or him being nominated for best director. Right. Right. Okay. So that's, that's all I'm saying. So Francis Ford Coppola has this, the conversation with Gene Hackman and a baby Harrison Ford, which I was not ready for. Um, but he's in there. I enjoyed it. I think it's a good movie. I think it's about a half an hour too long the pacing is just a bit slow. It could have used a bit more time on the cutting room floor. I think Matt editing the Godfather part two, give him a fucking break. (laughs) Hey, this is, you're going to get some criticism if you're going to make two really good movies in the same year, Matt, you've brought this up several times on, on the podcast, which is those like hour and a half movies and getting it down to that shorter time period is very difficult, but it also, in my opinion, makes for a better movie. That's what I'm learning as we go back and watch a lot of this stuff. The Godfather 2 is obviously not a very short movie. Great, amazing movie. I think the conversation could have used a bit more on the cutting room floor. And I also watched Lenny. I understand why it made it on there. It's very much like Lenny Bruce in that it's very risque. There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of like vulgarness to the movie. And if you've watched Mrs. Maisel, it's a completely different take on Lenny Bruce that I would imagine is much closer to reality than you get in Maisel. And Dustin Hoffman's fantastic in it. Now, if there is anyone in this room who has not found this obscene, then you're full of blah, and I hope you never get your blah, blah again. That's my entire show for guys. Thank you for now. I want to know more about Francis Ford Coppola in that... Who are his parents? Where did he come from? How does he get to a point where in 1974, they're not making very many movies and he's getting greenlit for two, right? Question. And then doesn't he fall off? I mean, I know there's Godfather 3, right? But like, 
after this, he doesn't do that much of note that I know about anyway. And maybe I'm just forgetting something, but the rainmaker, right. One would expect that he would follow up what he did. I know he's got a winery, right? He's got to have other hobbies that then. Took oh, one, he had a nervous off. breakdown. He had a nervous breakdown during Apocalypse okay. Now. And okay. two, his cinematographer who did Godfather, Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now is part of his team and, and really half the reason for his success. We'll have to revisit that. Right. When we come back, we're going to make our picks for next week. But I did think it was very interesting that Chinatown also had a kick-ass soundtrack uh, that featured a badass trumpet. You want any more of this stuff? As much as you can bring me. It's $2,000. Minus my commission. Look at you. Swanning around like you're Al Capone. They say in town you're looking for someone to help out around the place. Well, Mr. Bodrin, do I get the job? Seems you've been involved in certain illegal activities. You have any idea what a Thompson submachine gun does to a mortal? It's not the violence that sets men apart. It is the distance that he is prepared to go. We're going to do Lawless. It's on Netflix with my boy Tom Hardy and my girl Jessica Chastain. That's my Virginia Hilljack family people (laughs) plotting for you. Who's our actor? I want the truth. Tom Cruise. Wow. We will be doing 2009 in film at the 2010 Oscars. That's the first year they did 10. Hartlocker took home the gold that year. The other nine included District 9, Up, Up in the Air, Inglorious Bastards, Avatar, A Serious Man, Precious, based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire, and An Education, as well as The Blind Side. We will see you next week. Thank you, and good night. Good night.